0: Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks. All of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My amazing sponsors for season two of One for the Road are Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee who are both in recovery, and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear. You don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all Rock Sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF drink. My guest today was a member of the '80s dance group Legs and Co., and then she went on to form the fabulous rock band The Cherry Bombs. And now she works tirelessly in the field of addiction and trauma. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on One for the Road, the amazing Anita Chelemar. <laughs> So hi, Anita. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. I've got a little secret to tell you. I've been looking at your Facebook and it's absolutely amazing. Honestly, I grew up in the 80s. I remember you from Legs & Co. That was one of my favourite programmes, Top of the Pops and looking at all the pictures you're amazing you've done so much in your life how are you
1: I'm all right thank you so much for having me on the show and yeah no it's I'm I'm really really good and just you know yeah you're right all the pic all those pictures I mean somebody posted something today apparently on Roku now the, the band I was in and I just found that out because unfortunately I got sort of we never got the royalties from all that but anyway that's another story but it's no i had a brilliant time in the 80s it was it was a mixed bag actually it was really mixed because it was amazing the things i did and you know i I did um i started off in the west end my first job was was a a show called bubbly brown sugar and it was the first black all-american and um cast and i'm half asian and I got an audition for the for the show, and I remember people sometimes would sit there in the audience and say to the people at the at the bar, "and mid, is that girl? Is, is what nationality is that girl?" And because, um, but in the American cast, they just saw people of color, and it was it was great. It was just such an amazing show. Amazing people came out of it, and um, and yeah, and I did the King and I with Yul Brynner, and then did Legs and Co., which was fantastic, and and all along doing that those amazing 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 jobs and I love Top of the Pop so it was such an honor to be part of something and I it's when I look back now I think wow you know it was just it was such an honor to be part of it all and then and at the same time you know I was sort of um I was drinking and doing things as well you know there was stuff that was happening and it didn't it didn't really seem so obvious then that that was a problem because at the time it was you know it there was not it wasn't a 9 to 5 anything i did was wasn't really that way inclined but Mind you saying that It's it, um, North Acton Where we rehearsed we, we worked from like Nine in the morning And rehearsed all day But alcohol and and, and drugs Didn't seem such a problem then But um, it was amazing I had such a brilliant time And went on to do A pop group Toto Coelho And we went on Had hit singles And got a gold record In Sweden And then left back To do the Cherry Bombs And Funny I just found out today It's on Roku And um, the, the live gig We did at the Marquee And that was incredible We supported poor and, and toured America, and yeah, it was just incredible. I played CBGBs and that legendary place in New York, and yeah, it was really. I had some, and then ended up presenting my show on Sky, and that was after that show, I ended up getting sober and clean, and that was an experience. But I had a great. But it was such. It was such a mixed bag the eighties for me because it was incredible. I met some amazing people, did some amazing things, and it was such fun. And and I just kept sort of lurching from one thing to another. And I just, you know, I'm still really close friends with quite a few people today. You know, I was just really blessed working with some amazing people.
0: Yeah, I I heard that um, you was in a lift with David Bowie, right? Oh, and, uh, my God. <laughs> I mean, what an experience that was, eh?
1: Can I just say, from 15 years old, I was obsessed with David Bro. I mean there's three people in my life, three icons, which was Mark Bolan, who when I was twelve years old, I met when he as he came out of Harrods. I just I was there with my mum and I literally he came out and I just stood in front of him. And I remember what I was wearing. It was a green, a green Paisley smock dress. I was twelve years old and I just stood there going and he went, Hello, and got in his oh. I don't know what it was, Rose Voice of Bentley, some amazing big car and drove off. And then when Born to Boogie came out, um, the film that he was in, we went to, I went into London. I was allowed to go into London with my two friends to go and see it. And literally on Regent Street, his car came down and and he was with with his wife and I can't remember who, was that Angie Mo at the time? Anyway, whoever it was. no, Mark Boland. Sorry, I'm getting getting sidetracked here. was in Mark Boland's in his car, and I just we were in the we literally went across the road, saw the the car pulled up at the traffic lights. I looked in this car, saw Mark Boland, started screaming like a crazy Well, when, well I was only about 3, 12, 13, ah! and this man came over with a bowler hat and went, "Excuse me, can you be quiet?" Because I was just totally in awe of seeing Mark Boland. And then when I was in Legs and Co, I was working. We were working in North Acton. And Flick Colby me stepped into the lift, and as we stepped into the lift, David Bowie was facing, facing me, and I just, I didn't know he was in the building, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And so I started talking absolute utter gibberish to Flick, and she's looking at me really strangely. We got upstairs, and we were getting our plates for food, and as I'm sort of pushing along, getting the, you know, getting your food, putting it on your plate, um, on the tray. He walked along towards me and I'm thinking of every single thing I can say that's going to be so amazing, this captivating line that I'm going to say and he's going to go, oh, my God, she's just amazing. And he went, excuse me, can I get to the cheese? And I went, yeah.
0: Oh, what, I down. couldn't even
1: talk. I was like absolutely starstruck. Oh,
0: he was in,
1: because he really represented to me growing up. Because I was always a little bit—I don't know—I've i, I I've always had my—I uh, don't know—just trying all different things, different hairstyles, different colors. Trying this one day. I remember when I came to London from Newcastle. One day I was a skinhead. Next day I was a—I was into rock. I was rock. I was dressing one day. I was a hippie. Next day I was holy cows and—and and, and what do you call the mohair suits? And I was always changing, you know, I was always lots of different things. And David Bowie sort of gave that sort of, I don't know, he just sort of, it was almost like giving you permission just to be you. And that's, Mm. I mean, I loved his music, but I loved him. Everything he stood for, I thought was amazing.
0: And the thing is, with the 80s, it seems so innocent. And I think maybe when we say about the alcohol, I think we didn't know as much now, right? Um, You know, I grew up, I was a DJ actually when I was 15, 16. Uh, And some of my favourite bands, you know, Duran Duran, I used to love Level 42, Mark King, the bass player, Mm. he used to hold his guitar up really high, and I (laughs) used to practice with a broom, I mean I was 28 at the time, but no, no I wasn't, but Spandau Ballet, I used to wear two rings right, on each pinky, because he did Cause some people you say oh you look like Tony Adley you know and I was walking around thinking well you know I was probably 16 17 years old you know really impressionable age but I I just loved that era but you know along came the drinking and there was a place we used to go to in Croydon right called Sinatra's and it was one of those places you'd wipe your feet on the way out you know <laughs> it, it was um, something like 12 quid um, to get in And they had like a buffet. The thought of that now, honestly, a buffet and uh, free booze all night. And our aim, of course, was to get as drunk as we could because it was free. But we never really knew. We weren't educated into alcohol and drugs so much those days, Mm. were we? So when did alcohol start to come into your life? How old were you?
1: Well, I actually started drinking between 12 and 14, but obviously not full on. But I had a mum who was very she was very liberal and she you know and I'd be brought up with people would have a glass of wine with their meals and, and so you know and bless her for she felt really guilt she felt really guilty when I got sober and I said well actually you know no one made it she didn't make me an out you know an alcoholic or an addict it was just but she was very liberal and so I remember I used to bring people home from school because in my last couple of years of school when I came to London I I sort of wasn't there too much. I was really bright. I was in all the top classes. And then I started just playing hooky, going to Victoria to the cinema there and going and watching movies and just, you know, just and I'd invite people around to, to the flat. My mum, she was a designer and she used to travel quite a bit. And she always had people like making sure I was okay and she had food there and everything. But she made homemade wine. And I didn't know it's really dangerous if if it isn't fermented properly for people. And I'd be like pouring this out, thinking I was really sort of grown up to friends and filling it with water. And I did that with Perno. And I didn't know Perno changed colour at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I remember drinking. It all went, I filled it with wine. She went, who's drunk Perno? I went, not me. And there was only her and me in the flat at that point. So it obviously was me. But it was like, at that point, I didn't realise, I I mean, I started from a very young age. I was going to West End, like really underage. And when I look at, I've got a son now, and when he hit 12, 13, 14, and I looked at him, and I thought, wow, at this age, I was going out and doing stuff that I just, you know, I'm just, I'm so blessed that I'm still alive, really. To be honest with you, because I'd get the night bus to Stratford and walk from Stratford at the time I lived in Leytonstone. And I'd walk, you know, and it was it's it's just crazy because there's a fearlessness. I think there's a sense of feeling fearless, you know, and my drinking was it was always there. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, it started with food at a very young age. I used food. I always used something but I didn't recognize it, you know, to change the way I felt. I always, I started with food really young. I remember this image of going to the fridge really young. And then my parents split up and I went to live with my, um, my mum, we lived in Whitley Bay where my dad lived. And then I went to live in West Hope with my grandma and granddad, with my mum. Then my mum came to London and I ended up, it was really hard because I, you know, I love both of them, but it was, um, and they, you know, they, When I think about it, they really probably felt they would, my mum probably really felt she was doing the right thing. She said, you know, they said, who do you want to live with? Well, as a child, to have to pick is just, you know, it was just painful. And we've talked about it since, you know, and we, you know, as you said, you learn things through experience and you learn things through as time goes on and there's a lot more talked about families break you know childhood trauma all of that stuff and and I came to um I was going to live with my dad and then at the last minute I know now I've got to live with my mom and um I wanted to live with my mom so I came to London and to live with my mom and so and also when my mom came to London she was honest, trying to set up a home in in London and I was then probably gonna join her I stayed with my grandparents for um, a while uh, so there was a bit when I saw my dad on a Tuesday and the weekends and my mom was in London coming back up to see me and I remember starting to eat food and going in about you know every night I'd go to the chippy or I'd be eating food and I was putting on weight you know and and my mom was really concerned but at that point there, there wasn't really counsellors or therapists I mean I was born in 59, you know and so there wasn't that wasn't really something that there wasn't a forum or any way you could really sort of talk about stuff like that. And I didn't know what it was I was feeling anyway, or I know I was eating on my feelings, you know, I was doing something. And so I came to London and then, yeah, I just sort of, you know there was always something and then that sort of trying to fit in and I think I was saying to you that you know my my, I never had a broad Geordie accent my husband always says as soon as I go past Reading my voice changes (laughs) but as you know as soon as I um, as soon as um, when I came to London then I started going out and at school they didn't understand me apparently for the first three months and then um, but then I started going out I was going out to clubs and I was going out underage and You know, when I think about it, but it's so, I mean, and then I got into performing. I fell into dancing because the lady at the top of my road, her daughter was, was a ballet dancer and my mum, this lady babysat me basically. And um, and my mum was one at the time, one of the chief designers around Marks and Spencers. And this lady babysat me and she, so my mum was doing some really long hours and that the, over the summer holidays her daughter was going to go into this dance school and so I went along because of just to be there and ended up going to that dance school and I started dancing really late about 11 12 and then when I was leaving school because I've been playing being naughty playing hooky from school I didn't know what I was going to do so I went to, I was going to go to Epping College to reset my GCSEs and Miss Hester at Maudwell School of Dancing in East Ham said why don't you come and train as a dancer full time which is what I did and then I went to London School of Contemporary Dance, and then I got into Bobby and Brown Sugar in the West End. But it all sort of fell into place. It, you know, I was very, you know, I think I was really, I had talent, but at the same time, I was very blessed. The timing of things, you know. But I think that's when I was drinking, and like you said, there was an innocence. It was. I remember on a third, we'd get paid, and I'd on the the next day, I was asking the director for a sub. I'd get paid, and then. And I would go, you know, we went to a club called Mudbreeze in German Street after the show, and I'd go there and then I'd buy everyone a drink. You know, when I look at this, there's a bit of grand, a little bit of grandiosity there. <laughs> you know there was I was like okay everyone have a drink and I'd be saying to people no we don't have to go yeah we don't have to go yet. On, let's just have another drink come on let's go and then of course drugs came into it as well in the 80s I remember it was the mid early 80s when you know cocaine came into it you know and um and I was getting this liquid stuff speed stuff from Germany when I look back I mean and I went to a private doctor um who actually I won't say where or who um but I went to this private doctor when I was performing and I was really thin anyway and i said and and of course my head i've got this sort of like mentality addict mentality i need to be thin i need to be thin i need to do you know all this thing and i went to the doctor and i said i need to be thin for my job and he said um he said well you know he, he prescribed me these vitamins which had speed in them and um I said, "Can I drink with them?" Which isn't the—I don't think that's the healthiest thing you can say to say anyway, And he because I was bursting out and boils. I had boils, and <laughs> and I'd go to him for B twelve shots. It was just ridiculous. And he said, "I said, can you drink with them? He said, "You can have some wine." And my friends said to me, who aren't alcoholics or addicts, and they're still in my life today. My really close, close friends who were always wanting me to get—you know—always, always trying to. I'd always go to them, you know, after a night to just be feel safe. And um, they said, I don't think you meant you can treat a carafe of wine. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? But, it was like, but that, that was, you know, all that stuff. It was, I didn't see the chaos because I quite thrived on it because I'm quite, I am quite naturally quite buzzy. Mm. And, and since I, I sort of, you know, I, I, the energy I, you know, I can, I, and so it was very, you know, and I would just be that chaotic way of being. And at the time it was, It wasn't interfering. It didn't feel as if it was interfering with anything. That's why I didn't really recognise that it was going to be such a huge issue, really.
0: How much was you drinking?
1: I don't know. Um, Whatever was there. (laughs) Now, I don't know. I mean, I I took a pride that I wasn't drinking when I was working. But then it got to a point, I remember we were touring in America with the cherry bombs. And I was saying, I need to have a pork for my throat. (laughs) Now, you know what I mean? It's like, and so at that point I started drinking before a gig, which I'd never done before. I'd never, right, you see in my head and these are all these weird little um, rituals or little statements. I tell myself to tell myself I didn't really have a problem. I didn't think I had a problem. I was really shocked when people sort of thought I did. Mm-hmm. And I remember my flatmate, he's like my brother. He's just so gorgeous. Um, and Rad, and I remember him saying, I was 19 years old. And I remember him saying, and this is gay. And he was saying, and he said to me, you know, you're such a lush. And I was 19. He said, Alcohol doesn't agree with you. And I thought he was telling me I was luscious. Do you know what I mean? I think he was, I thought he was telling me I'm really lovely. And I'm really, but he wasn't. He was telling me at 19 years old that I was, you know, you, you really can't drink. I didn't see it, see it. And, and I don't know. I think people did, people close to me saw it. But at that I bounced back very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I was always, cracking you know sort of having a laugh and doing stuff so how much did i drink i really don't know but i know i started the evening drinking i loved vintage bollinger champagne but i ended up the evening drinking night nurse so there you, go. you know if that isn't an alcoholic you know, i don't know what is it you know
0: and that's really dangerous actually isn't it night yeah. nurse I think Amy Winehouse she overdosed night nurse as well and did she
1: I didn't know yeah, that yeah
0: it, it's really dangerous so then you started in the cherry bombs do you want to talk to me about
1: that yeah that was great I loved it was, it was like Terry the drummer he's still one of my best friends he's like really I'm really close to him he's a chiropractor great chiropractor and um, what happened was I was in Tudquella and I left and I wanted to do have a solo career and a guy called mark who was the producer of one of our Total quality videos he said oh i know someone who's writing cuz i wanted to write and um, and that was another thing at school in the school i went to there was a te- it used to be a grammar school it wasn't a grammar school when i went it was a comprehensive school and one of the teachers there had never got over that and i used to write poetry and it was always i don't know if it was what it was but it was my poetry and she used to put red lines through it and say see me and i'd go and see her And say what's wrong, and she'd go, It's just not right. And now, when you're telling that to someone, a young person, I was about when when you go into senior school, about 12 years old or 13, whatever it is, telling someone that when you, you know, and I wasn't confident, even though I appeared confident, I was quite, I was very insecure in a lot of areas. And what happened was I didn't realize until I started writing with Andy McCoy, who was the guitarist and writer of the um, band called Hanoi Rocks, and Hanoi Rocks were really popular, and we came back from, I came back from Totecollo um, in Sweden, we were doing the Hippodrome, and I sat in the middle on the plane, and I was in the middle of Hanoi Rocks, and I didn't know it, and um, Razzle, who bless him, he died in Los Angeles with Nicky Six and Motley Crue, and on the film, there's a film called, oh, I can't remember the name of it, it's on Netflix, but it talks about, you see the character playing Razzle, anyway, he was pouring brandy in my coffee, I didn't realize this, and I'm thinking, I'm feeling all right right now. But when I, that's when I met Andy and I came back and I decided I was going to leave um, and try and get a solo deal. And so Mark put me in touch with Andy and we started writing stuff. So I started writing with Andy McCoy and we wrote songs and we formed the band, The Cherry Bombs. And, uh, it was it was like really bizarre because when I, when I look at it, there was sort of actually sitting there and, it, and he was known at the time for taking drugs and stuff. And he was sort of like, and I'm thinking, Oh God, my songs are, re- my, my lyrics are really bad because he's like, he's really not present. And he looks so like he was falling asleep. I was thinking, I was so insecure, thinking, Oh my God, I'm really crap with this. <laughs> but actually was he was pretty out of it at the time. And what happened was, you know, I sort of, I realized that I was scared about writing because of what had happened at school. And I'd never written until then. And so we formed the Cherry Bombs and then we performed. We went up to all the universities and most of the universities up and down the country. And um, and people were going, What is a girl like you ended up in a hard rock band? You know, because I did, I, this is what kept happening to me. I'd fall into things. I was always fall. And I loved, I mean, I loved it. I love music. I love performing. I love, you know, I love acting. I loved, love it all, if I'm honest. And then we got an opportunity to go to America and I went over and did some, some press over there. And, and I remember at the time in America, this is really bizarre what I'm going to say, but at the time in America, they had they they banned anal sex from 22 countries, basically 22, 22 states. Now, the reason they banned this is because there was a thing about anti-gay. There was a lot of anti-gay stuff going on at the time. And I was outraged because I'm very pro all rights and people, you know, equality, and I'm against homophobia, sexism, racism, all of that. And at the time, there was an interviewer who ran, <laughs> and it was they'd run from um San, I was in San Francisco and they rang and they said, so how are you enjoying America? And I said, well I'm really upset about this law that's been brought in because I explained why because I felt it was like a, it, they weren't being honest but it was it was anti-gay it felt very anti-gay. Well, they wrote this newspaper article, and I think we've still got it somewhere, but Anita Chalamar from the Cherry and anti, anti the and uh, the, something, the anal, the anal sector, whatever it was, the way they phrased it. And I was like, oh my God, what are people thinking? You know, because they didn't put the whole thing in there. So I went, I did the, um, we did the tour, and we supported Poison, and that was incredible. And I remember I was upstairs at, was it Whiskey, a Whiskey, Go-Go, or the Roxy, really, one of those. And at the time, um, Guns and Roses hadn't broke, uh, or were breaking and I didn't realise it was, um, was Axel Rose came in because he knew they all knew um, Hanover Rocks had been a really big band and Guns N' Roses bought all their back catalogue anyway they'd been a real cult band but a really known band and, and a lot of people thought very very highly of them and Mike Monroe who's still gigs he's amazing what you know a talent and Andy McCourt all of them they're an amazing talent the musicians you know Terry obviously and um and Dave Trigana and Timo but and Nasty <laughs> but anyway we, I was up there and this person came in and went to take because I was kept keeping all the memorabilia because I wanted to keep everything from the from the, everything we were doing And this guy went, oh, he went to take it. And I went, hold on, that's mine. He went, I'm on the cover. I went, well, I'm in the middle. (laughs) And it was Action Rose. (laughs) He was lovely, actually. And he was really sweet. And um, yeah, we did did that and we toured there. And and that's when my drinking really started taking off, actually, because we got to, um, we played, oh, gosh, where was it? Because I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, on stage, myself and Andy, the guitarist, had a big fallout, and I went running off the stage, locked myself in the toilet, and someone's going to the manager. Your lead singers in the toilet, (laughs) so I came back on, and then you know, and then at the end of that, that was that was sort of the end of the the band. Really, we came back, did Reading Festival, and then then we disbanded. But I mean, we're still. I'm friends with all of them now. It was just a friend of mine always had a, a theory that. Bands became like their names and we were like a cherry bomb. We really did explode yeah. and we had explosive energy, but we also exploded. We were like 10 hours on a, on a you know, doing 10 hour tours in a minibus. That's everyone did in the, back in the day, doing stuff. Like that. And I remember I was reading, I had the um, Bhagavad Gita and Hollywood Wives and that sort of summed up my person. and I had this really sort of grown up intellectual side and then this real fun side. It was yeah, it was fun. It was fun, but my drinking started really. You no, know, I started really seeing it, and it was affecting my mood. And I remember going to a club one night, and nobody because I felt I couldn't go out because of my throat. Um, I had to look after it, and but one night I went out, and somebody, bless them, at this bar went, "How are you?" And I just did a classic, burst into tears, got hysterical, and told them my life story. And they were desperately trying to find someone who knew me to sort of come. She's really having a meltdown, you know. It was it was. And that's when I didn't even see that was that was being caused by the alcohol and the drugs. I didn't see it at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's a depressant, and you know the thing is build things build up, don't they? When when you were saying about touring, it just ultimately reminded me of uh, the comic strip when they did the uh, Mickey take of the spinal tap documentary, and I don't know if you saw it. It's called Bad News. And Rick Mow was a lead singer and Aide Abramson. And it was just so brilliantly done. And that was done in the 80s with fists full of travelers' Checks. And there's all these things that remind me of the 80s with the music, with the fashion. I yeah. used to have these jeans with red piping down the side, you know, um, and the shoes with a little brass tip, uh, the Harrington oh. jacket. I just love, love, love that era, you know.
1: I loved all yeah, the clothes from there. I loved. I, there was a shop. I used to go to Kensington Market. It was a shop there called Yaya. And funny enough, Ziggy started for them. Used to, I used to buy all their clothes. And and there was always like big shoulder pads. And funny, yeah. i was still got in COVID. I got rid of 22 to 30 bags of clothes. I know I've kept them all this, but there was no way I was going to fit into half of the thing. and in the end I just had to and I gave them to a charity shop to be honest with you. I just gave them um but it was like I had shoulder pads that had lives of their own. You could build planets <laughs> on them. Do you know what I mean? They were just like really I loved a shoulder pad. Yeah, I still do, was it, was I still love all that.
0: Dynasty or what what yes. was, yeah Dynasty
1: and Dallas? Well, I did, yeah, I loved it's it's it, I loved a shoulder pad.
0: Yeah, people listening to this not having a bloody clue what we're thinking (laughs) about. Anyway, we're having fun. So on a serious note, when when you say um, your drinking started to get out of control, is that when the band broke up or before that?
1: Well, the band broke up, oh, I think we were in 80s. Oh, I can't remember exactly the day. In the mid-80s. And then I went to, because before I went to the band, I actually who'd been interviewed on Sky, I was one of the, um, on Sky Channel, they just, they'd started Sky Channel, Sky Tracks was their music channel of Sky, and um, I got interviewed, and she, a lady called Gail Clayton, was the producer, and she said, there's a job going for a presenter, do you want it? I said, well, I'm going to America now, but and I, th- I, th- I said I'm in a band, and and then I came back, and the band disbanded, and I rang her up, and they'd already they hired Anthea Turner, funny enough, her wow. so first her yeah, first job, and on there was Gary Davis, Tony Blackburn, Pat Sharp, Anthea Turner, and me, and so we did. Um, we had, we, you know, we did shows and stuff. And I remember my attitude. If I think about it, we did, I did the first ever World Music Video Awards, Gary Davis Live. And the, and I, we didn't have, auto, you know, the autocue, we had autocue, but then it stopped. And I just talked, I don't know what came out of my mouth, for honest, but we did some amazing things. When, oh, and But what happened was, I for me the drinking is it really is like the symptom of it because I look at the mentality and my attitude and my attitude then was getting really quite fixed and quite you know it was it was you know they were saying to me things that really could have helped me you know it was like people it was it, I was so fear-based because she was saying things like she was a lovely lovely lady She went, and he you know you could go and get deals with clothes shops you know because it's current it's about changing it's about and I was like in my head no 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 I'm not changing I can't change I've got to be who I am I got so frozen and frightened and of course the drinking was escalating and so was my fear mm-hmm. and you said it's a depressant so what happened was even though I did that for about two years um, and I loved it but I was getting more and more caught up in drinking afterwards and and getting fearful and when it came to and they were saying about doing different things and and I was I seemed to be really in, stuck in a lane and and they started getting rid of people because I think this the, the music channel of Sky was closing and and I was one of the first ones and and even though it wasn't they never said it's because of your drinking but I know now and at the time I didn't think it was because of my drinking but I know now it was because of my drink because it was my thinking do you know what I mean it was the thinking of an active alcoholic that fear-based scared shit this excuse my French thinking but actually putting on yeah I'm fine I know who I am I'm I'm, I'm all right mm. but I really wasn't I was crumbling from the inside out and it was really interesting because they when I lost when they let me go and that was in February 1988 and I that's when I just I didn't know what to do I, I mean in between jobs I'd never known what to do I was just very lucky I fell into something else and then I get caught up in that because I go 100 miles an hour and something else, and but then there was nothing else lined up and I didn't know what to do. And that's when I feel my drinking really was, it was, it was so obvious and I didn't know what to do. And I remember that's when I reached out for help and I went and, and I didn't like the help I was getting. And I sort of fought against it and then surrendered in April the 3rd, 1988. And my life changed from that moment on, my life changed. And I was in, and it was really hard because at the beginning I knew how to, perform on stages I knew how to make records I knew how to present shows I knew how to um, act in things and yet I didn't know how to do anything else and at that point you know Spielberg wasn't knocking on my door record companies weren't going we want to give you a deal I didn't have anything and I went oh my god and I was in debt from the 80s from money I hadn't paid certain taxes because I'd spent all my money. I lived, I lived large, you know what I mean? I lived beyond my means. And so I mean, Wilson, I remember this, and, and I also I'd have a medical procedure as well, which was it was always really scary. I got sober and then all this hit me all at once. And I remember going to Woolston County Courts and sort of saying, and i they wanted to see my receipts. And at that point I didn't have an accountant. I had an accountant, and at that point I didn't. And I had a shoebox with like a few receipts in it and I turned up with this shoebox and my very early days of being sober and I said uh, I didn't know what to do and they said you've got to pay off your the money you own it took me nine years to pay off certain debts and I remember I was paying something like three pounds a week of something to some and I had no money I had no money coming in and I started you know going to Places where I get my recovery from, and I ended up. I was walking, so I didn't. I didn't drive. I didn't have a car. I was used to people taking me places and driving me there, and all of a sudden, all of that. You know, if I, if I heard a taxi, my arm went out automatically. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, that wasn't there. And I remember going up to my. um there was a, there was a, I lived in Kensal Wise and going up the road uh, in Chamberlain Road, there was a health shop. I went in there and I said, and they had a signed photo of me on the wall and I said, um, do you have any work? And they were, they let me work nine hours, I think it was two, nine, it was nine hours a week or something like that. And they were so kind. They said, you know, you can have something to eat and you can sit in the manager's office and you can have something to eat for, you know, for a break out of the three, it was three, three lots of three hours. And I met, and this is how, my head was you know I was I was sort of in this grandiosity with this really low self-worth and this don't you know who I think I am attitude with nothing and 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 then at lunch when I was eating this food I was there for like half an hour I was sitting on the manager's chair and they came and went you've got to go back to work I went I know my rights and he went what do you mean you know your rights I went I know my rights and then they sat me <laughs> and, then, and, then I remember, and rightly so. And then I went and then I went, you know, I rang someone up who'd been helping me and I rang and they said, do you think maybe you, got, you should be a bit grateful for them helping you? And don't you think you've been a bit arrogant and a bit grandiose? And I rang them, and I went back and I went, I'm really sorry. And that's how my recovery was. I then went to work in a place called the Lighthouse, London Lighthouse. And in the early 90s, when people were dying from HIV and AIDS. And it was really, it was the most amazing place. Um, and it was the most, and it sounds really bizarre, but it was the most amazing, amazing place. It was such an incredible feeling in that place. But I went to work there. It was as it was cleaning, and I got the name changed to residential unit assistant because in my head I can't be a cleaner. I, I was a pop star. I was a this. I was a, but the bottom line was I wasn't right then. And I had to really get, you know, get. I had to earn money. I had to pay my rent. I had to pay off. Pack- taxes and so i went to the lighthouse and they were amazing because i was there for eight years part-time and i was also terry my friend was doing um he then was a chiropractor um, terry charms of the clash who was in the cherry bombs and and i started doing lifting for him as well with his and so i was doing all this stuff in the, and then the lighthouse offered to pay a third of a i was actually working there and i hated cleaning I was really useless at it. I really liked talking to people so I'd always be sitting chatting to someone and I remember they um they I th- I knew they did a lot of training and they let me go on training courses and then they let me go on this particular counselling training course with the counsellors for a week and and I and and I it was great because I was, I was doing stuff to get away from things I was really not I really hated it and so I went there and they ended up letting me Offering, they paid a third of my counseling training so what was incredible for me and this is why I sort of feel there's always something looking out for me you know because it wasn't what I would have I heard someone say one, once that rec- this recovery this like, isn't the recovery they would have ordered but exactly that because when I came in, I didn't think this is what I would have ordered but I then went into that you know this field of work and 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 I love it and um you know but it was like if I hadn't done those things I never would have got that but at the time I couldn't see it and that's why I know I've just got to trust and do the next right thing the next loving thing just keep keep going down that path you know.
0: God, You you really have fallen into everything haven't you you know like when when you look at your life it's incredible it's real serendipity but those kind of things can really really help can't they I mean For me, I did two years counselling studies when I was drinking and I used to drink while I was doing my homework. I would have like four pints before I'd even open the MacBook and then write this thesis, which was incredible. Send it off, go into college the next week and they would just look at me like, what the hell was that? you know, because in my head, but what that did that gave me a real solid foundation to learn a lot of the skills that I've got now to help people and listening is such a skill providing a a safe space for someone and also Mm -hmm. having a natural empathy. But having the empathy that um, you and I have been there for our addiction, Mm -hmm. Uh, and sharing that knowledge is so important. And I mean, there's something as well that um, my strap line, is um spirited enough without like that that's my strap line yours is the singing addiction counselor I mean <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't really get better than that can you I
1: love that <laughs> the singing addiction counselor I love that oh I love that that's really good the singing. <laughs> that's really i do i really like that. that's really cool baby I like that.
0: <laughs> it's, it's fabulous it's so so how long have you um been doing that
1: well i trained i qualified well this is another thing because there was that sort of i started doing the this is crazy as well i started doing the course in 94 and it was meant to finish i think 97 but i hadn't done all my hours because i was so scared i was so because i thought oh my god i'm going to be let loose to help to work with people and I I took it so seriously I was like really so I didn't finish all my hours I think it was 98 I finished so I got a qualified um theory I think was whatever it was but 98 is when I and from then really and the only time I stopped I stopped when I had my son in 2000 because I met my husband in 92 when my dad died and then I qualified in 98 and we got married in our anniversary is actually in two weeks and then I had my son and I stopped working for I think it was for five years I did one little bit in the first but I, I just you know we both said about and, and it was lovely we we both made a decision that I just wanted to be, we both I wanted to be at home just with him and and I think also when you come you know for speaking for myself coming from where I'd come from growing up and and you know and and I'm not knocking it and I'm really grateful and on so many levels because the certain gifts that my mum gave me she gave me a real open-mindedness she's she had friends from all walks of life all nationalities all genders I grew up with that mentality and back in the day you know my mum married my dad and and he was um you know, he's Sri Lankan by by birthright but born in Malaya and back in like in the early 50, in the 50s there wasn't mixed marriages a lot of mixed marriages and so I really but There was a lot, we had a lot of stuff happening in our family and so they split up and when I came to, when it came to me being a mum, I wanted to be there because I'd been in different places at different times in my life and I'd never been in one school all the way through and I wanted to give my son something that I hadn't had really. And, and, you know, not that people who do it differently are wrong. It's not wrong or right. It was just something in me. And so I was able to, and so I stayed at home and stayed with and looked after my son. And I loved that. And then in 2005, I got back into it because between 98 and... 2000 and just beginning of 2001 I was working in this field and I was doing um, I was also doing drama workshops as well I was sort of like using drama with step with the steps in 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 a male treatment centre Person House, and then I was working in Hope House, which is a female treatment centre in Kilburn, which has moved now to Clapham, and then I was sort of I was doing different things, and I was lucky. I was an educator in Drug and Alcohol Foundation, and they teamed up with Six Fifteen Theatre Company. We went into schools Year Nine as a pilot scheme um, the government did, and we went in to work with Year Nines, and it was really like there was this guy called Dennis who was really he looked like Michael Jackson, danced like him, and they, and, and it was really a mate, you know, the the Blur track, yeah, do 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 that. That would be the buzzer and so the kids it was really interactive it was really fun and then at the end of it i do the the question and answers and mediate that you know facilitate talking about stuff and i remember we went to one school and it was all around south london and kent and we went into one school and it was so sad because like you went into the school and I'm, and I'm not blaming the teacher the teachers I could see were struggling too but all the the toilets were painted black there was there was just a feeling of no hope it was one of those you know one of those those schools and the kids were so super bright but they were trying to nick the alcohol <laughs> they were false drugs they weren't real drugs but they were trying to nick all the stuff but we had to go back twice and to each school and we did and we did a tour of Southeast and in Kent. And so I was doing stuff like that as well. And then I in 2005 I got back into doing working in organizations and doing stuff and and working with addiction and now doing stuff with addiction and trauma as well. Um, so I've been doing it a long time. But mm. I i do love it. I I you know I love it. And I've and I went back to perform because I never thought I'd perform again. And then in 2012 my husband I was like thinking oh I really miss singing. And um he said, well why don't you contact someone and so I rang Timo, and he's now moved to Finland, but he was here, and we started doing gigs again. And and I love writing, and I love singing, so it was just, you know, it was just really, really nice. And and, and it was, and it's just, it's it's just, you never know what life's going to throw at you. You never know where you're going to go. I don't know where I'm. I'm moving, I feel as if I'm transitioning into my next phase of my life. You know, the hairs grey and and <laughs> I see kindred oh, spirit silver. here yeah
0: yeah, yeah yeah, well mine's battleship blonde but um <laughs> no it's true you know what you say you don't know what life throws at you but I do know that when you're drinking you really really limit what can oh. happen to you it's such a isolated world and uh I spent a long time nearly 10 years on my own and I I create this little bubble of self-destruction you know and I used to I remember listening to this um, Pink Floyd track on the Division Bell album right and uh, in the days of the CDs where you'd have the remote uh, and you would just play it rewind play it rewind play it and I used to get more and more drunk and it was a real like Desperate song, but I felt so incredibly sorry for myself. Like I felt like the line there was, Where were you when I was down and broken? Yet yeah, I was creating it myself, you know. But the more drunk I got, the more in this weird world I become and feeling totally sorry for myself. And I get up the next day and feel total sort of regret and remorse and would say I'm not drinking today and then you know what happens the longer the day goes on the more you encourage yourself to just have one and then on comes the Pink Floyd you know the hamster wheel you know Mm. and when you stop it it's like ripping the blinkers off isn't it and you look at the view around you And it's hard in the beginning, it's hard for us all, it's it's an incredibly addictive drug. But that's why I really encourage people to stick with it, you know, each day, day by day. And, you know, these days, we can learn so much more. There's a lot of um, support out there on social media, there's what you do, you know, I'm a coach, there's so many things, AA, so many things people can reach out to, you know, and attend events. I did an event on Saturday, and it was honestly it was amazing it was in uh, Dalston in East London and people travelled from all over the country and it was just the best and um, one of the ladies that did the food she said to me I cannot believe how many healthy faces I'm looking at here and it mm-hmm. really struck a chord, you know.
1: Oh, that's beautiful.
0: You know, and um what you know the work you're doing is amazing. So is the band what's happening with the band now?
1: Well the band's I don't the bands in every single different country in the world, I think. Timo's in Finland, um Dave's still here, but we haven't done a gig for for ages and ages so I don't know what's going to happen with you know when we'll get together again when we'll I keep singing and writing I keep writing and singing into my phone and um but also with <laughs> I do it at all different times it's really weird but just going back to what you said because what I discovered fear when I got sober initially when you said the beginning it's hard and, I, and for anyone who is listening if, if anyone who's struggling I remember at the beginning I really struggled you know I mean i, I because I I was going you know I was going um, I was doing my recovery I was doing everything that was being asked of me to do to stay clean and so, sober, and and what happened was I was sort of like nothing else was happening in my life and I'd always got validation from the outside in and all of a sudden there was nothing to validate as such and I had to learn how to live in my skin and I believe for me that when you start an addictive process you stop growing emotionally and I felt I was this twenty nine year old woman who felt like about a ten year old, and I was so scared of people and i remember thinking what's fear and then i was going to meet some friends who were really safe for me and my hands were sweating and what i realized was you know people would say things to me and i'd be like overthinking everything like someone would go how are you and go what do they mean i just was so insecure and so didn't know myself and i thought i knew myself so well and what was so wonderful about it but what was so scary about it was allowing yourself to grow into your own shape and skin and mm. be who you are. And if you're always changing, you never know who you are really, because you're always evolving. But it was, but what came for me was like that, you know, I was saying, there's something I say quite often is I became childlike as opposed to childish. You know, I became, I was, became spontaneous in, an, in a healthy way. And I learned how to do that. I learned how to go, wow, there's a sunset. It's so beautiful. I'm really, you know, I love to see, you know, get excited about things, but also, you know, I remember getting to ten years sober and thinking I'd be like that Miss Sober person, and I hit depression, and I'd never had depression before. And I remember going to the doctor and saying, "What?" Do I-? She said, "Well, you're actually depressed," and she wanted to give me medication. And at that time, it was like, "No, no, I've got to feel my feelings, everything." And and I do think when I've, when someone first gets sober, it is very easy to want to medicate everything because you think, "Oh my God, I yeah, this is never going to pass. Like this is the end of the world. I feel this. I feel that," and it's you know, stick with it, and and sometimes people have other mental health issues as well so of course go and talk to your doctor or psychiatrist or psychologist whoever you're talking to therapist but what I found for me was at that point I had this fixed view that I I needed to do it with nothing and and I got to six weeks of the doctor saying to me yeah do what you need to do she signed me off working I was walking around I was still crying and angry and and in the end I did need some medication and I stayed on it for six months and then came off and I haven't had to go back to that since but what I realized it's about never saying never totally either because there were other mental health issues going on for me at that point and I needed to address them and once again and in recovery it can be even though I'm very I, you know, my recovery, I put it for, you know, I always say to my husband and my son, they're the most important people, but my recovery is the most important thing. Because if I'm not clean and sober, I will lose everything I love. Mm. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I do believe that my feelings are little messengers that tell me where I need to do the work. So if I don't have the the feelings, then I'm not going to know what needs to be worked on. So I try and look at, you know, I'm not someone who sits and go, yeah, I love pain, bring it on. I don't. But I know when there's pain, usually for me, it is about, it's telling me something's going on that I've got to look at. And the beauty today is I feel I can look at it. There's been nothing that's happened that I haven't been able to get through mm. today. And I'm, th- you know, so I'm 33 years sober and clean, which is, in- you know, I really, the people that have helped me, everybody that's helped me like you know, I do believe in a higher power for me and, 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 and I follow a program and I do, but I reached out for a lot of therapy I did and I'm still doing stuff I've reached out for something recently around certain areas I don't believe I'll ever stop growing and there's periods of time when I might it it feels just easy and there's times when it's like it's like it's like a roller coaster still you know because I'm in I'm living my life today so you know what I had to learn was when things happen like my dad died suddenly when I was four years old I went up to visit in Whitley Bay that like dropped down dead you know what I mean it was and I didn't have to drink on it. I actually, you know, I I, I started smoking again at that point, cigarettes, not anything else. But I, at that point, I thought, that's the worst thing I'm doing, you know, from where I've come from. That's really not the end of the world. Today, I'm not doing that, you know, but it was like, when things happen, it, I had to learn that actually to feel really sad and really sort of all those mixed feelings is part of life. It's, that's a, that's sort of normally that's quite okay because any I was so unused to feeling things when they happened it was like my emotional pipe was like blocked I'd feel something three weeks later or respond to something or react to something about two years later to something someone said two years before you know I was so out of sync and kilter whereas today I sort of feel I'm able to be in my life right now, like with you, This is so lovely, and sitting here and seeing your lovely face, sitting there, smiling. It's just so gorgeous. And sort of sitting here and being able to communicate with you and just share and have a chat. But I'm actually here. At the beginning, I've got to be honest, when this first started, I think my head was a bit la-la. I've got to be honest, because I think at the very beginning of this interview, I've I've got a feeling that I I was... Because I've been working today and I came back and I did... I think my head took a little while to settle down, probably. <laughs> I think, I think, if it if it has, I think it has.
0: I'm absolutely loving it. I'm I'm loving it. And I think we are kindred souls, you know. I do. <laughs> and we're gonna meet, trust me. We're we're gonna oh, together. be are gonna have a walk somewhere. Oh. But you know, I always say to people, there's no magic wand.
1: No.
0: Um, you don't stop drinking and everything's a rainbow. No. It really isn't. And I mean, when I stopped drinking, right, it was the first time I tried and I did it first time. I, I've, made my, I've got one of those minds that when I make my mind up, mm. how many times am I going to say mind? <laughs> I'd stick to it, right? And it was a few days after my wife got re-diagnosed with cancer for the third time. My initial feeling was, this isn't right. I need a drink. But then I thought, Do you know what? I need to be present here because the last time I wasn't and I was present and we went um to see the oncologist and I knew, I knew it would be on her mind, my lovely wife am on her mind. And we came back and we laid in bed and I put my arm around her and I thought, Do you know what? I wasn't there last time. Although I was there, I wasn't mm. truly there.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and we got through it again uh, and now she's well. She has regular treatment, like maintenance treatment But just that alone was amazing. And it made me realise actually how selfish I was. And and not intentionally, Mm. as you know, you're not intentionally selfish because it's a disease, but I cringe at the thought of how it was for her when Mm. she was unwell and she heard that, uh, 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 because I used to pour Mm. huge Mm. glasses of wine. She must be thinking to herself, well, he's slipping away from me. And, Mm. And she used to say to me, well, you've left the building now because my eyes used to go and it breaks my heart now thinking about how it mm. was for her laying in bed at night on her own wondering whether she's gonna live or die and her husband's downstairs drinking himself into oblivion you know
1: Absolutely. and it's things
0: like that that really really keep me sober that the community that i'm surrounded by keeps me sober and the work mm. i do mm.
1: that's,
0: you know, like yourself, you know that really, really helps me with my own journey.
1: Well, I have to have people with me who do the same thing as me. I have people around, and I go to meetings, and I do. You know, I keep that. That works for me, and 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 I've always done it. And I'm just so blessed that people who are still, you know, who who you know like-minded people, really, with the same same sort of a day at a time doing staying sober and clean and and how incredible is that really and like you said the selfishness I remember my dad a few I was only about two years sober and I remember I was up in Newcastle and we were at his friend's place and his his friend said I need to come and see this new thing I put in the in the room whatever and I went in there and as I got up I saw my dad's face and looked terrified and what it was he the, this they built a new bar and I wasn't drinking at that point. I was going to meet, doing everything I was doing. And and he went, and I just, I happened to look at this. I just looked over, my dad looked terrified. And I thought, And it was a real powerful, and I thought, oh, wow, he thinks I might drink. And it was just moments like that, because I remember I used to drive, he'd be driving down the road in Whitley Bay, or the, the dual carriageway, and I would like be, You know, drunk, opening the door, threatened to throw myself out. He had to get his friends to look for me on the beach because I'd go running off. There was always drama. There was always drama. You know, my my lovely friend, he was like, you know, he would, um, he's like, as I said, my brother. You know, he would come. He would be, you know, driving looking for me people didn't know where I was I'd disappear you know that I I cost people I really robbed them of their peace of mind you know my mom I'd ring her up she went to live in Dubai for and I I remember I used to ring her up and say I was I was I was drunk and I was in the middle of the West End And, and you know when I think about that and when I think of people I love and it's not, and I always say, we're not bad people getting good, sick people getting well. I know I've, for me, I believe it's an illness a disease in the mind. It really is. It's not something when I was at school, I didn't put my hand up and go, can I be an addict or an alcoholic when I grow up, please? You know, it was something that I didn't choose to have, but I've got it. And I'm grateful. I know I've got it. And, you know, and I really believe I need to have a drink or use again. I really believe that if I just keep doing what I'm doing or what, and whatever works for people, you know, whatever's right, like you've found what works for you mm. and, And it's that but I hear what it is, what you what you're saying, the gratitude. That's what I hear as well. The gratitude and the real realization of where it took you and how the impact on people you care about. I think when you're sort of holding all of that, it really helps to be able to sit there and 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 stay clean and sober by with that gratitude and Mm -hmm. humility.
0: And you know what for me as well is staying in touch of your feelings when I was drinking. So I recently did a post of someone called uh, Sarah Drage and her dad was two years older than me. She had to turn his life support machine off and she did a TED talk on the stigma of alcoholism because people were saying, well, it was inevitable that that was going to happen. You know, the amount he drank and that. And I've kind of paired up with her to, to support this campaign because, as you just said, it is an illness. It is a disease. And we don't intentionally mean to hurt anyone, harm anyone. I mean, my wife used to say to me, I just don't understand why you can't just have one glass of wine. And it's only now that she understands
1: mm.
0: how it was for me, you know. Mm. And I, I'm so passionate about getting this campaign out there to to stop this stigma around alcoholism. You know, we're not bad people. We're not, you know, we, we're just people yeah
1: And well that's the thing you know I did bad thing you know I admitted I and I love that phrase and it was taught to me you know I'm accountable not responsible I was account yes I did certain things and am I proud no I'm not there's things I did I hurt people I loved of course I you know sitting here today but I I you know I didn't I it wasn't something I chose to do. it was until I got into my recovery I didn't know I even I had what I was, what I was, if you know what I mean. Mm. I don't, now I'm in it, and now I am really responsible because if I step back into it, And that's why, you know, the first couple of times when I said I I relapsed between in six weeks, because what I kept trying to do was do the same things, just not drink. And it really didn't work. Going out, going in certain places and doing certain things, just not drinking. It was almost more painful because it was like this pressure cooker of feelings with no way way of dealing with it because I wasn't meditating all that insecurity and all that. And so for me, it really was, it's been a real journey of like, learning who you know feelings what's the feeling I didn't know what half the feelings were because I was I I was just sort of like 100 miles an hour doing so or comatose do you know what I mean it wasn't like and now discovering what feelings are and you know and, and all of that stuff and that i had an impact on people they have an impact on me and it's okay if i feel and you know and but also not just living on my feelings because that was the other thing i when i did have a feeling it was like this must be real well not everything i feel is real because <laughs> some mm-hmm. things have been triggered from the past and and i have to sort that out as well and so it was a slow it's been a slow journey and i'm still learning i'm still on that and that's what's exciting because we never come off this do we we're always like you 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 we're on it
0: I mean, I always say, and this works for me, um, that I'm not in recovery, I'm in discovery.
1: Oh, I love that. I like that. I like that. I'm in both.
0: (laughs) Yeah, In the discovery, recovery. (laughs) I I mean, but that works for me, you see. I love that. Because it's life's a journey and I've given myself the best chance I can at my age to live the rest of my life as best as I can. I love that.
1: I think that's really, really nice. I've learned
0: so much about myself as well. I'm a lot quieter than what I thought I was um, because I always wore that jacket of I'm Jack the Lad and hello, boys, and whatever. And now I'm like some old sage. You know, I I could be quite happy in an orange robe on a mountaintop in Tibet just (laughs) looking out, you know. (laughs) That's how I feel. But it's it's an incredible journey, and that's why I try and motivate people in the beginning, the early stages, to to feel the feel
1: mm.
0: also to find other ways of other techniques to relax it's you know because for- I do
1: transcendental meditation I learned that when I was drinking oh sorry I butted in sorry no no I, I don't that when I was I learned that before I went on the American tour because I knew I wouldn't get much sleep and they taught me <laughs> transcendental meditation and then we got on the plane they said it's been delayed we're giving you free champagne and then they carried me off the thing that goes round and lacks airport round and round because I was drunk but I've I carry on with transcendental meditation, you know, I still, I still do, it. but can I just say, when you said about being quiet, even though I know I'm like, whatever, I remember a few years into recovery for me, someone I knew from before who I, and we were singing and she was doing something and this particular girl was really upset about something and I remember I was just listening and at the end she said, oh my god, it's amazing and I really hated the thought of being shy because I get, I actually get shy and I get all these feelings and she said, "I said, what's amazing?" She said, "Once upon a time, I couldn't have talked to you like this because you were so up and so zzz, 100 She said, but "This and and I learned. That's the thing. I sometimes do get shy, get quiet. I get. I like being on my. I like like sitting in a one to one having a chat or a few people. I can do a big thing, but I'm not really a big thing person. If I'm really honest, I like being able to have a little chat and having people in my home and having dinner and chatting. Yeah, I just wanted to. What you said, I really, I really sort of." got that and resonated with that i really sort of identified with that actually yeah
0: i think it slows you down because you you know the emotional blunting of alcohol you you just on this huge like oh i said right when i had my first drink i was like a greyhound out of a trap 100 miles an hour you know I, I would drink really really quick and to get the effect it was never for the taste always for the effect right so I I could get drunk in half an hour. I w- I would drink three 8.4% ciders and then get stuck into the wine. And when I think about that now, I think my poor body. What was I pouring into myself, you know? So when I stopped, I really had to find peace within myself. That was so important for me. All all the demons from the past, I thought, right, okay, I'm not ready for them yet. I've got I've got enough to deal with now, so I just parked those. Right Until I was further into my sobriety and then bit by bit, I piece it all together and I'm learning now and there's things that I'm not ready to address, but there's things that I have addressed. And this is what's so fascinating about this entire journey of discovery for me, because I'm learning about myself and I never put myself first before. I I just put the drinking before me. You know, it's like having an affair, a sordid affair in it with alcohol. The mistress always won, no matter who I was with in my marriage. Now that the mistress was always there and now she's gone. I've booted mm-hmm. her out the door, Anita, and she gone.
1: <laughs> she's gone. <laughs> she ain't come back. She's oh gone. God,
0: darling, I could literally talk to you for hours oh. and hours and hours, but I, I generally try to keep these uh, to about an hour or so. I'm so grateful that you've come on, honestly. Oh, thank I mean, you for really, asking me really wonderful honestly it's been
1: so lovely talking to you really has been and thank you for asking continue with your wonderful work you're doing and i wish you all the really all the best and you and your wife how amazing to come through all that how beautiful
0: we've been through a lot and and we've got triplets as well i mean i am only 28 look at me (laughs) (laughs) but no we so the lying
1: never you never sorted the lying out i see
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's the bit i've got to work on
1: was that the bit you said you're not ready to work on yet
0: yeah yeah (laughs) might take a few years but anyway my darling thank you so so much well Um, thank you i hope one day we will meet
1: i hope so absolutely i'd love love that
0: that. all right thank you so much thank you you so much
1: yes definitely take care thank you you. and thanks everyone out there thank you Bye. bye bye
0: i hope you enjoyed today's episode Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at Sober Dave or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Have a great week and take care.